Hello and welcome to today's podcast on international organisations and networks, health and disability in the late 20th century. I'm Liz Egan and today I am joined by Wanik Son and Shalini Rudra. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about your research projects. Um, to begin with, can I ask you both to quickly introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your research journeys? Uh, Shalini, do you want to go first? Yes, thank you, Liz. My name is Shalini Rudra and I'm from India. I have a background in economics and I have worked for around 10 years in uh, implementation of health policy in the government as well as private sectors. And my interest in my current work started when I um, worked on access to medicine issues in India, but I realized that there has been uh, a private as well as there was complete bifurcation in of private as well as public sector access to medicines and that is how i came to know about this project that um, welcome is funded at warwick university department of history where, which is where i where i am currently based and i'm working on f what's at fake in the stake project Within the project, I am currently looking at initial access to medicine campaign and how these campaigns mobilize and advance interests of the nations of global south to demand access to fairly priced and good quality drugs. And I'm also tracing successive campaigns, like the one that starts with HIV AIDS medicine and then goes on to um, um, medicines for uh, cancer disease, uh, cancer drugs and things like that. So. I'm tracing uh, to what degree the successive campaigns of access to medicine intervene into narratives of the quality of drugs, since pharmaceutical lobbies have often charged, uh, are often charged with scaremongering against all the medicines that are available, which are not covered by intellectual property rights as counterfeits. And this story of access to medicine, the one that begins with patient activism, actually in literature, it ends up in the hands of large pharmaceutical corporations. And this movement gets co-opted and capitalized by uh, um, large pharmaceutical lobbies. In, and they tend to influence standard setting in various countries. And with the advent of uh, World Trade Organization and beginning of uh, internet intellectual property rights harmonization across countries, the public health interests are compromised. So my research is basically I'm trying to trace the journey of access to medicine and see how international trade regimes and harmonization of these regimes across countries has actually intervened into uh, pharmaceuticals, access to pharmaceuticals and quality and uh, generation of a discourse around quality of drugs, which leads to fakeness as a discourse, as a concept, fakeness of medicines. Thanks, Shalini. Uh, and Monik, what's about you? Hi, uh, thanks for having me. Um, my, uh, my name is Wanik and uh, I'm currently uh, working towards a master at the University of Cambridge in history. Uh, my work is primarily on humanitarian photography and, and films uh, to trace the UN's role in defining the disabled. Uh, I'm primarily engaging with visual media on disability produced and disseminated by the UN system. Um, kind of trying to portray and reveal a continuity um, throughout the late 20th century, images constructed through a mediation and tension between a few UN members, 
uh, UN officials uh, and third parties from uh, these contract photographers to uh, American PR firms. Um, I think uh, disability provides this crucial framework for expanding histories of the UN. I think as, as both a, a concept and lived experience, uh, disability featured ambiguous uh, boundaries of scope, uh, these uncertain definitions of whom and what were included uh, were debated right as this organizations uh, were facing new challenges um, in the late uh, 20th century in the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s as um, the, uh, an increasing skepticism um, of the necessity of these international organizations were taking root the rise of um, neoliberal governments in the West. Um, and the UN as this institution that was compelled to constantly reaffirm its legitimacy to a post-war uh, international public um, used this visuality of disability uh, to showcase uh, the importance of their work. So uh, primarily my research looks at a history of the organization, history of institutions, at the same time looking really deeply at the role of images and visuality and definition and the ambiguity of the definition um, that involves constant negotiation between uh, institutional forces as well as uh, individual forces that are on the ground. Ah, thanks. Um, so maybe now we could hear a little bit more about what you're working on particularly at the moment. Um, Shalini, I know you're looking at a particular campaign, so maybe you could start us off. Yes, actually, um, for this current paper, I can um, talk about that. And I have been looking at uh, the role that civil society organization has played in evolution of access to medicine campaign. And the role of uh, these actors become important because they are critically, they were critically engaged in redesigning and implementation of trade laws historically, and their role is special. Their role is especially noteworthy on demystifying these laws of patent protection in case of pharmaceuticals because access to medicine campaign is has um, mobilized large patient lobbies to and supported by pharma, local pharmaceutical companies of countries like Brazil, Thailand, China, and India to support these campaigns move forward in terms of negotiating uh, their um, uh, negotiating rights of these countries to form and implement laws that will benefit the, these countries as well. So the paper that I'm uh, currently speaking about my work is trying to understand the strategy, the strategy that CSOs employed and how they went about the agenda of realigning this jurisprudence of international trade law, taking advocacy roles that these transnational or national civil society organizations played. I'm basically looking at uh, influence of one particular um, network, which was like third world net, uh, sorry, civil society organization, which is like third world network, it's called. And I'm trying to understand what has been their role in terms of mobilizing Indian pharmaceutical companies to become, uh, to 
you know to be uh, to become pharmacy of the world as they have been as, uh, always touted as and um, you know the india's pharmacies from india a pharmaceutical companies from india already are already projected as david you know in the david versus goliath kind of equivalent in which they supply generic which is like a cheaper copy of a patented medicine to save lives in countries like south africa where they are in huge demand because of the hiv aids uh, as a largest public health problem in these countries so how do india perceive roles of these civil society organization in first place and how it has actually benefited private governance largely rather than uh, mobilizing public um, governance in in um, you know in uni uni uh, unifying these countries of global south together so basically it's like global south countries from global south versus world trade organization and civil society actors are the ones who uh, ne negotiate between three kind of bodies one is world health organization and world and these multilateral organization like world trade organization and unctad and things like that and the patient lobbies which then uh, works in tandem with government uh, local governments and design their sort of campaign around access issues so the role played by the civil society organizations very important so it's 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 it important that it's tra traced over decades and how it has materialized over time and what are the organization that it has benefited the, the most apart from patient lobbies uh, thanks Shalini. Um, and Monik, I really want to hear more about um, visual sources particularly that you're looking at and you're thinking about different kinds of visual sources as well. So I was wondering if you could tell us about the things that you're working on or thinking through at the moment. So my work looks at these vast uh, archives of um, still photographs and films from the WH archives in Geneva and uh, UN headquarters in New York. I think it might possibly be useful for us to, to kind of look at, to use an image to better illustrate the uh, approach that I'm taking with this history. I think um, to talk about um, the history of visuality and disability, uh, you know, do need to take a look at the images in order to get a sense of what the history is all about. Um, I often leave the archives um, with not only these photographs, but these past files about um, photographers who go out into the field and um, bring back negatives and contact sheets, uh, field notes, um, things that kind of illustrate a story that go beyond simply the one photograph, uh, that there is component of movement um, and transfer and uh, kind of exchange that's involved in the production of a single photograph that gets disseminated to a larger public. Um, so the image that I wanted to show is an image of a, an accident. It's an unfinished story and it was taken at a moment of, of I think chaos and shock. Uh, the full gravity of the accident hasn't registered to anyone on the scene. The injured, the medics, and the bystanders. It's an image taken from afar and you can't quite identify anyone in it, uh, subjects are faceless. Well, we do see a, a man 
being stretchered off. Uh, we don't know the extent of his injuries and whether he ever recovered enough to walk again. Uh, this is one of two photographs uh, of New York City car accidents that are included in the UN photo archives under the disability tag. Um, as part of a series of uh, pictures and images uh, commissioned from around the world in preparation for the 1981 International Year of Disabled Persons. Um, uh, at, at first glance, I think this photo invites more questions than answers. Uh, why is the UN taking photographs of accidents in New York City and why is it categorizing them under disability? And was the photograph's purpose to show various um, healthcare emergency re response infrastructures in different countries. What happened to the man in the picture? Uh, the moment really is captured before any diagnosis. And I think the open-endedness of this story uh, really contrasts with the emphasis on concreteness and uh, irreversibility in, in these depictions of the disabled in uh, the UN photo archive. The, so-called depictions of the cripple, that um, an incompleteness of body that uh, seemingly is permanent and unchanging. Um, I, I think this particular example really demonstrates the contradiction of the photograph in, uh, as a historical object. Um, kind of it is an object that seems to, to record a, a very specific and static moment in time. Uh, yet fundamentally, uh, as I described, involves movement. Uh, there's a tension and mediation between distinct actors that are involved in creating uh, this uh, image. The, the photographer, the organization, the member state, uh, each have their own distinct and um, distinct motivations and interests. And it involves this travel of photographers who go out into the field uh, they need to be flown there. Uh, they need to go out into the, uh, the village, perhaps, that they're working in. They uh, send their uh, film back to get pr uh, processed. That film gets cut, it gets um, edited, it gets cropped and balanced, adjusted. Subsequently, it's uh, placed in magazines uh, like the World Health Magazine. Um, and then that gets disseminated around the world. So it involves transnational economies as images are reproduced and uh, disseminated across a vast network. So I think this particular image uh, trays just one example of a long history that uh, persists a continuity uh, reaching back to the immediate post-war. That's great, thank you. It's really interesting. Um, I'm thinking that you're both thinking about different actors um, and different networks that are going on and kind of leaves with the question of what about perhaps the communities or this idea of community um, who are being impacted by these kind of other networks and other organisations that are going on. I'm wondering about this, yeah, this role of the community or um, yeah, if that makes sense. Um, I don't know who wants to go first on that. Um, Monique, do you want to maybe um, think about this? In, in terms of community, definitely, um, it relates to this question of 
kind of creating or uh, manufacturing an image. And the role of definition in disability. Uh, what I'm seeing in, in photography is often um, photographers go out into the field without having a clear sense of what disability and what that encompasses. Um, often they're going out with um, the rudimentary um, kind of briefing from UN officials saying, uh, this is what we would like to see in our photographs. Um, go out there and take pictures as you like. Um, say something on malaria prevention or uh, vaccination in X country. And they go out there, they're not trained as medical professionals or they're not necessarily in tune with the specific academic or intellectual discourse behind say development economics or whatever um, uh, larger uh, thing that's uh, being discussed in the UN. And they're going out there with their own kind of understanding of what that encompasses and um, they themselves are creating the boundaries of a very fluid definition of disability, very fluid def uh, definition of what, uh, say, medical intervention is. Um, and they're in, in some ways creating that definition for the UN, creating that visual definition for the UN based on their own understanding of what that is. In that sense, I think, much as disability is one... Uh, that is created as a concept is created uh, through this negotiation and in the field. This idea of community is also one that becomes manufactured in a sense and created um, in order to define it as well as to intervene in it. Um, what is involved, uh, who is included in this concept of community um, and what types of, you know, sensibilities are in some ways projected by a predominantly Western kind of, uh, visitor uh, to different places. Um, is there a sense that this definition of community is also flattening um, kind of the, the local political structures and local power structures that exist within this community? So these are things that um, the visual uh, creates, manufactures, as well as um, it is in some ways defines uh, in a constantly fluid manner. Um, Angelini, I'm thinking about how you're thinking about these civil society actors, um, but what is their kind of relationship to or um, interaction with community level activism and how does this affect the change that you're seeing from kind of activism to corporatism that you, you're talking about? Yes, so uh, the participation of civil society actors is key because it sort of links intellectual property rights with this public health impacts in, gen, um, in general. But I would say that the role of transnational civil society groups was important because it mobilized across state boundaries the um, the kind of uh, things that were previously thought as some as a jurisdiction of nation states and 
something that in, uh, rapidly expanded and shaped the practices of international law in general. Secondly, the transnational society, uh, transnational civil society actors made innovation interpretation of uh, patent laws in the local forum of countries as lucid as possible, which means that uh, in a sense, they interpreted the way the uh, issue of patent will be problematized in, um, in terms of access to medicine but we see that happening in a very limited sense the way the problem the, the way the problematization was um, envisioned led to a very limited sort of a solution devised for uh, access to medicine issues the this uh, this missed the opportunity of scrutinizing patent policies for futuristic scenarios like complementary policies such as public good protection, developing local capacities within the countries of Global South for research and development, and delinking research and development with research and development of new medicines with privately funded research. Instead, the nation, states, and civil society actors should have worked for a canvas which relaxed IPRs in the introduction uh, for introduction of healthy, competi healthy uh, competition in the market. India is uh, India stands differently in this uh, whole uh, participation of transnational civil society actors because India has a vibrant uh, social movements. I mean, has a history of vibrant social movements with large representation of non-state actors. If uh, you um, look at Dr. Amak Amakawani's work, in, uh, in which she compares India, Brazil, and Nigeria, she says that India and Brazil's grassroots mobilization provides scope competing theoretical ideas about social movement in terms of identities and concerns. At the same time, the strategic efforts that were put in by these actors in funneling information and producing knowledge makes it unique. But these actors, the civil society organization, are not devoid of financial concerns and they need for running into, I mean, they have been called out for running into controversies about accepting donations from um, uh, donations from contest, uh, uh, bodies that have contesting opinions on intellectual rights. Mostly, some of them are backed by, uh, by pharmaceutical lobbies themselves. So that is where the contestation over intellectual property rights and developed nation and developing nation worsen. And uh, so basically, the global fund was established to mitigate the situation by donor nations and hence supply generic medicines to countries that could not afford patentable medicine. And there is a sort of complacency that these non-state actors began to show towards them. So in my work, I'm trying to establish that as a method of co-optation of these um, civil society actors into um, away from what they plan to do in access to medicine campaign. Thanks, Shalini. Um, so I feel like now I have to ask, um, because you're both working on health and disability and thinking about WHO, um, the fact that you're like in light of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, I was wondering about how 
the current circumstances have made you maybe reflect new on some of the themes of your own project or perhaps how your projects have made you reflect new on the pandemic um, so I'm just thinking about kind of how you're thinking about your research in the current moment as it were um, I don't know Wanik do you want to go first? Sure yeah um, so I was very much um, in the middle of it all um, in early February, I was at the WHO headquarters in Geneva. Um, it, what would end up being my last trip to the archives for the foreseeable future. I think um, for a lot of people there, uh, the, the upheaval that would subsequently ensue uh, wasn't yet fathomable, but there was still kind of the, the ominous uh, apparent health crisis um, that was looming. Um, and uh, while I was at the, the library, and used cameras had kind of taken up residence at the entrance. Um, reporters were broadcasting updates uh, to kind of a, a global public, but still unaware of what was going to come. And the librarians, when they weren't looking at uh, resources for my own work, uh, they were going through all the different papers and and studies of previous outbreaks to make some sense of the virus that um, was still very much unknown at the time. And I was kind of an outsider um, observing this frenzied atmosphere um, as, as a researcher at the researcher's desk, but I think my own historical work had in some ways become intertwined with that present moment. And um, my own work in the UN and WHO's Humanitarian Images of Disabled has always involved the idea of imagined spaces and the imagination of who populates those spaces. So um, where do the disabled live and um, how do the UN photography and the photographs suggest um, live there and where do they live? And I think often displacement has facilitated this construction, this idea of disability as loss and uh, fundamentally about incompleteness of bodies. This, these images of uh, twisted or missing limbs, children, missing limbs from landmines, those images we see over and over again in, in charity drives and uh, different um, visual programs uh, meant for aid and the medium itself, um, kind of humanitarian images often displace their subjects from the larger political context, the geographical context, and the temporal context. I think the image that I showed previously about the accident is in some ways uh, divorced from this idea of temporal space. Um, you really don't get a sense of where that story is and um, it's incomplete. I think for me, um, the, the spaces are imagined and um, space in our own era seems to be kind of something particularly relevant, particularly meaningful um, as you know, uh, the whole world has been in some ways displaced and this idea of um, space has been facilitated in these um, I mean, in the U.S., six-foot increments 
um, and constantly shifting conceptions about uh, the imagined population of who is, who has the virus and who dies from the virus and uh, who is included in that narrative of um, this pandemic and who gets lost in that ultimate discussion. So in, in that sense, that's what I see, this idea of space and displacement is um, something I, I do see uh, as particularly meaningful in, in, this, uh, in this period. Thanks, yeah, I think that's really, um really eloquently put, really, yeah, not something I necessarily thought about, I don't think. Um, and how about you, Shalini? How has the pandemic affected the way you're thinking about your research? So about my research, I was initially planning that I will do some oral history interviews with people who were involved in uh, rolling out uh, trade-related intellectual property rights regime and people who have seen this unfolding between developed and developing countries. But now since one-on-one -on -one interviews can't be possible in an immediate future, I think I will have to resort to something like a, a sort of an open-ended questionnaire that I circulate and then get their opinions on. Or if, there's, if there are people available in countries that uh, represented their agenda throughout um, access to medicine campaign across World Health Assembly as delegates. Probably I'll get them on Skype and try interviewing them. But placing the pandemic in a larger context, I think it is a, it offers a very unique opportunity for a kind of work that I am looking at and I'm interested in is seeing the leadership of multinational, multilateral organizations like WHO and donors and how donors actually can affect in a larger way these multilateral, multilateral organizations function and uh, the way the donor-driven donor agenda can actually be detrimental to the way these um, UN bodies were imagined to be functioning. Secondly, this is a very good opportunity to also look at the role of research and development of, um, in, I mean, research and development in uh, new pharmaceuticals and vaccine vaccines, and how they get they get co-opted in a sense that the the financing agencies actually has a larger say. For example, the recent uh, pledging event that. Uh, is a, so there is a pledging event that happened recently, last week, last month, where donor countries have come together and pledged certain amount of money for financing the vaccine development. There are some 190 vaccine trials going on right now. But these uh, processes of pledging and then finalizing and fixing volume. So basically, countries have donor countries have come and also bought volumes for something that hasn't even been ready you know they've been so where does it all fit in the equity framework of uh, making drugs available where it, where they're most needed you know countries like over, overcrowded countries like india brazil where you really see pandemics pan, panning out in a very uh, different way 
the way it has panned out in and been controlled in european countries so i think it it opens a larger debate where the role of civil society organization is key secondly a, there is a lot of uh, uh there is a huge sentiment against vaccination in general and you've been i'm in uk right now and i've been reading about how uh, these um, social media platforms have come up with surveys and found out that a lot of britishers will prevent them i mean will actually go against uh, this whole idea of vaccination and will not get vaccinated so civil society is one actor that actually comes very handy in that way because they roll out a lot of these programs when government in uh, countries of global south cannot and they this so they are facilitating agency they work at grass, grassroots so involving civil society from the beginning would have been a nicer way of planning this whole event but yes yeah, it it really lays out the realities in open that you know there are third certain methods that are being employed to get initial access or cut down access for some nations so i think the role of pharmaceutical lobbies transnational um, civil society actors local uh, national governments is all being open to scrutiny in a big way so i think i'm when i finish my work of analyzing these actors in access to medicine campaign i think it will be worth looking at covid as a pandemic and how um, um, resolutions and everything panned out for covid and vaccine development and vaccine trials in general and see how uh, my work or how access to medicine campaign was different or is common with what is happening currently that we are witnessing fab thanks shalini um so final final question um to kind of change up a little bit i just want to ask um can you tell us one thing that you've been doing um to look after yourself during the lockdown um what do you want to quickly say yeah i mean uh, as much as i can do and i'm in new york and uh the past few months have been the greatest year but uh, i've been taking walks uh i think to continue on the theme of images i've been watching films i've been taking photographs i suppose uh, of this this kind of uh, environment that we're in creating a new archive for the the future of the pandemic yeah mostly uh, staying at home and reading and doing things uh, slower pace than than usual i suppose that's most of us <laughs> definitely how many days now <laughs> uh how about you shalini yes so in my case so i have a daughter whom i'm missing so much i was supposed to have gone and come back by now and you know so i'm really focusing more on self care at the moment and it has helped me in my work the the kind of work that i am doing is like really very technical and it i somehow need to go out for walks and run and do some sort of meditation to clear my head because these are all i mean i'm dealing with international trade laws these are really 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 not so not very interesting um at the moment because they need huge concentration 
which I don't have right now. <laughs> I think everyone's finding it a bit hard to concentrate at the moment. Um, thank you both for participating in the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, I really liked hearing about your research. I've learned a lot because, again, don't really know anything about this area, so it's been really interesting for me. Um, and I just want to say thank you both. Um, yeah. Um, and to listeners, please tune in again soon for another episode in the Warwick Postgrad um, History Podcast. Thank you.